Good morning. Welcome to Life Unedited. Obviously, the wrong music queued up for the beginning part of the show, but I will correct that. Have to ask you people out there, anyone in the age group will say 45 to 57. Anyone remember 1978 through 1983 video games? Pac-Man? Uh, Yars? Yars Revenge? Um, anyone remember that time frame of home video games? What a time frame it was. Then what happened? All of a sudden, 1983, I'm like 15 years old, and it's gone. Atari disappears. No idea why I'm a kid. I don't know what's going on. But it just kind of fell off the map. Well, my guest today was right in the middle of the whole thing. Right there, Silicon Valley, working for Atari at its peak. Unfortunately, also at its demise. Blamed, in some ways, for the fall, not only of Atari, but of the gaming industry itself, from 83 through 85, went through a deep recession. Very unfairly put there. But I'm going to let my guest today speak for himself, and we're going to learn a lot about that time period. We're going to flash back to that time period. My guest today is Howard Scott Warsaw, who was one of the go-to, the go-to programmer for Atari during that time period. He did a video game called E.T., and we'll get into that. And that has been traced back to be the fuse point, the match that lit the fuse to bring down the industry. Again, once you learn the true story, not the case. But we're going to go there. Howard, welcome on to my show. Uh, thank you, John. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this. You know that. But let's start off a little bit about you. You are uh, from the Philly, New Jersey area, correct? I am. I grew up in Scotch Plains, New Jersey, but, uh, you know, my whole mother's side of the family is a longtime Philly resident, so I spent about half my childhood in Philly as well. So between Philly and North Jersey, that was the first 17 to 18 years of my life. There you go. Then you understand the culture out here of the uh, Philadelphia mentality, especially when it comes to our sports teams. Uh, I do. And I suffer <laughs> I suffer with you every step of the way. It's unbelievable. It is it is a nightmare. That's probably what gave you the strength uh, to kind of uh, persevere through some of the things you've been through in your life. Now, you know, but go ahead. like the Phillies, occasionally you redeem yourself, too, every once in a while. We're still waiting for the Eagles, though. You know, they get close. They get closer, then they fall backwards. It must be what it's like to program a video game, I guess, to some extent. You get close to what you're looking for. Maybe you nail it, but maybe you take a couple step backwards trying to rework it, kind of along those lines. There is a good analogy there because uh, you play with it, you play with it, you tweak it, you do it, and every once in a while you come up with one little thing. There's one little change. It's like when you put the last person in the lineup who just completes the team. And then suddenly the whole thing comes together and you feel it. And that's a very exciting moment. But it's uh, before that moment, when you keep trying to put other pieces in and it's not quite working, it's a very tense moment. Well, there you go. Now, you've got a master's in computer programming. I do. And now I find that this is where it gets interesting. Now, you find yourself, you land at Atari in 1981. They're mm -hmm. pretty much starting to go up the peak of the mountain at that time frame. They have really the first home video game units that are out. 
Uh, Pac-Man is the biggest thing going. You find yourself there right in the middle of this culture. You're a young man. What are you, 22, 23, 24 tops? I'm about 24, 23, 24, yeah. Now, I equate that time period at Atari in the gaming industry with what you're doing as a programmer, almost like being a test pilot. Well, I think that's also uh, very astute. It was, it was a very new area of programming. I was unusual in that at that time, microprocessors were brand new. And I was one of the few people coming out of college who actually had some background working with microprocessors. So uh, I actually, one of the reasons, there were two main reasons I went to Atari. One was because I was, I was working at Hewlett-Packard before that. That's where I went right out of college. And I was incredibly bored okay. there because I just wasn't interested in what they were doing. So I needed a technical challenge. I needed uh, something that would really get me up for doing the kind of work that I had loved to do and had lost track of since college. The other reason was uh, I was kind of a wild and crazy guy. Yeah, I've seen the pictures there, Howard. (laughs) The pictures alone say that. (laughs) I didn't fit in very well at Hewlett-Packard, but one of the reasons I thought of Atari in the first place was another guy I was working with at HP said to me, he goes, because people at HP used to go home and tell Howard stories sometimes, because I was, <laughs> I was unusual in the way I acted out at Hewlett Packard. And Atari, I fit right in. But, uh, he, he would tell her what he called Howard stories, and she goes, oh, that sounds just like what goes on all the time where I work. Oh, where's that? A place called Atari. That's how I first heard of Atari. Video games was the last reason I went to Atari. It was mostly... Uh, to be a place where I would be more comfortable being myself and to face the kind of technical challenges I really enjoyed and, and was used to from my prior work. Now, you did, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. You liked it, right? I like games. I love games, but that really wasn't, I wasn't a huge video game guy at the time, but video games were the type of work I really wanted to do, and I, it was a natural thing for me. What was the atmosphere like then? I mean, it seemed almost, from the documentary I watched, Atari Game Over, and then I've been trolling around and looking uh, on a couple other websites, uh, Once Upon a Time Atari. I get the feeling it was, in a way, its own version of the Silicon Valley version of the Wild Wild West. We're bringing in the best programmers with the quirkiest personalities to do some of the most bizarre things ever truly done on cutting-edge work as far as computer programming goes for video games, What you must have had a wacky group of personalities that you had to contend with. Uh, well, I wouldn't say contend with so much as blend with. Blend with. with. <laughs> okay. It was, for me, that was, that was the manna. That was the thing that really got me going. I like interesting people. I try to be one myself. Okay, and, that's and and you succeed at that. Trust me there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. But it's what was going on there was, you know, we were we were pioneering a new medium. This was the first time since television really that a new medium was being developed. That's a long time. And it was exciting and nobody really knew what to do, so what Atari was trying to do was, well, at least what Nolan Bushnell was trying to do originally, 
was to create a pure creative environment, to throw out all the rules of how companies are supposed to work, because entertainment software was a brand new thing to do, and try to create an environment where that really worked. And so he was looking for eccentric people who were very talented, not just technically, but creatively. And it's an interesting hybrid. It's not that dissimilar to what you're trying to find a lot of times in the movie industry. And in point of fact, the movie industry and the game industry have always been sort of odd stepbrothers. And so trying to create a, a purely creative environment is an interesting challenge. How do you do it? And how do you deal with the fact that most of the company, you know, your accounting and your yeah. finance and your marketing, they still have to be fairly standard people. And then you want to put a chunk of people who have no rules, who are trying to drive the engine that makes all this work, and deal with the friction between that group and the rest of the company because, you know, I think a lot of the companies saw us as uncooperative, mm -hmm. but the truth is we just spoke a different language. Of no. course, before I got my master's in uh, computer engineering, I had I got a bachelor's in economics. <laughs> and okay. So I, as a, as a programmer, was much more attuned to what was going on in the other parts of the company, I think, than a lot of the other programmers were. So it was kind of fun for me to see how this played out and how it was going. And I was able to talk to management people and talk to people from other departments uh, more easily. They would come and talk to me because they'd know at least they got a shot of having a conversation with me. <laughs> You're a little more, you were a little more grounded into the actual business sense of what goes exactly. on. Because I, I, I can relate to what you're saying. I don't have that, that uh, uh, creativity that you would have or any other program or have, but I know working in business, sales and marketing, I need some freedom to maneuver and maneuver around people and do my own thing to make it happen. Where dealing with engineers, and I do a lot, that throws them off. So there is that well, balance. I have to take exception to one thing you're saying there. Go I've ahead. listened to a number of your shows, and I really can't accept the idea that you're not a very creative guy. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> I can't write. I can't write. I can't sing. I can't dance. That's a, well, that a Genesis I, song. Is that a Genesis song? I can song? move a pixel here and there. <laughs> but see, that's the point. But if you're creative, and thank you for what you said, by the way, that makes me feel good. If you're creative, no matter what it really is, and you know this from from what you what you do, what you've done, and I'm going to slide into that in a second. Uh, it can throw people off who don't color outside of the lines. It can really throw them off, and if you have to contend with the suits, so to speak. They see bottom line, and you know that, and you at least were able to straddle a little bit into that that world, which leads us to, to another part of who you are, how you've reinvented yourself, which will be great getting to throughout the interview. You obviously have a way of looking with insight and empathy into people because now you are a, uh, a psychotherapist, correct? Correct. So that, And we're going to get into that because that, to me, to encompass – the creativity of a video programmer, the logic it takes to understand the economics of a business, and then to have the empathy and insight to be a psychotherapist uh, is about as well-rounded as a human being can get, wouldn't you think? Well, I hope you're not looking for an argument from me. <laughs> I, I, I'm just throwing it out there. I mean, I but think— that's a really great description. I mean, I think that's a beautiful— 
summary of the whole thing. And so for me, about balance. You know, it's all about balance and always trying to add something else and wrap it into the package and be able to cross lines and boundaries where people's perspectives limit them. And Atari was a great example of that, right, where you have people who are doing marketing, people who are doing management, then you have these weird creative types who are just out there because they're trying, their job is to do something that's never been done before. And that's a weird job description. Well, okay. there's been a lot of books written about how to work with the creative when you're the one that's the straight lace. And we're going to roll into a break on that one, Howard, and then we're going to come back and really delve into we'll say the final couple years of Atari and your involvement in it. You're listening to Life Unedited. My host today is Howard Scott Warsaw. Lack of a better way, he was there for the demise of Atari and the gaming industry in the early 80s. We'll be right back. This is Life Unedited with John Aberly on 1520 WCHE. Welcome back to Life on Edit. I'm your host, John. I really got the right song queued up. Fits the moment. The names you want from? Well, we did have it all set. There it goes. It's back. <laughs> Don't worry about it. You're not the first one. <laughs> Getting back to what I was saying here. My guest today is Howard Scott Warsaw. He was there and right in the middle of it all for the demise of Atari in the in 1982-83 and as well was able to see the demise of the gaming industry for the next couple of years. But that's just the beginning of the story. Now, Howard, you're brought in 81. Uh, you were given, I think, Yars Revenge was your first game? Well, yeah, it was, but it wasn't assigned as Yars Revenge. Okay. It, was it was assigned as a game called Star Castle, which was a coin-op conversion. And although I hadn't been there very long, I basically looked over the game, looked over the capabilities of the machine, and fortunately I was able to understand it enough to say, you know, this game is going to suck. Okay. <laughs> just no good. And they were, I got to give them credit, they, for a new guy coming in saying, you know, I don't want to do what you just told me to do, they said, you know, okay, do what you, I told them, I said I had another idea, another way of approaching it that might be more friendly to the system and make for a better game, and they said go for it. So I did. And that's the game that ultimately became Yars Revenge. And that went on to sell well over, I think, 1.2, 1.3 million cartridges, correct? Yeah, it was. I believe it was Atari's most successful original game. Wow. Then, now I think this was probably the first adaptation of a movie, or at least an uh, action movie, Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark, becoming a yeah, video I think game. that was the first movie license. Yeah, I, I'm trying, and that would have been a Lucas, I don't think Spielberg was involved in that, it was just Lucas Productions back then. Oh, no, that was a Spielberg thing. Okay, that was both and of them then. The movie was Lucas and Spielberg. Okay. But Spielberg seemed to have the rights. Okay. Because when I, Spielberg was the one that I worked with. I mean, we didn't really work together much, but I had to go basically have an interview with Spielberg to be approved to be the person who was going to do the Raiders game. Okay, so you had met him, and you sat down with him, and you guys, or you came up with the concept, he threw his ideas in, and that went on. And I remember playing that game. That went yeah, on to be extremely successful. 
Uh, that was a pretty successful game. It was a very controversial game because it was a game where we hit a lot of the secrets or tried to, and uh, it was very confusing for a lot of people at first. But it, people, you know, adventure games are like yeah. that. That's the nature of the adventure game. It's hiding the prize. Well, that was the and, thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, growing up for me, the game I did enjoy a lot was adventure, and you're looking for the golden chalice, and you're looking for the name of the creator of the game hidden in some dark room somewhere. I thought that was the exciting part. That was. Uh, Warren Robinette launched a, launched a genre in doing adventure, and he also created the original signature Easter egg, okay. which was something we all found ways to work in in various places. Okay. And it was interesting. To give you an idea of what it was like to work as a technical person at Atari, right. Right? it was thrilling, it was exciting, but it was scary, and it was difficult at times. You know, this idea of putting your name in the cartridge somewhere, hiding your name somewhere in the cartridge, the idea of that wasn't about just fun Easter eggs, okay? The reason we did that originally was because people were afraid that Atari would dump you at some point, put you out, and deny your association with the work, with your former work. You were self-copywriting? Well, what we were doing was creating a situation where if anybody doubted our authorship, there was something we knew about the game that no one else knew that we'd be able to produce and say, see? Makes complete sense. Makes complete sense. But think about the idea of living in an environment where people are supposed to be working with you, going along with you. You're providing something they desperately need, and they're thinking, how soon can we get rid of you? That's, That's a tough mentality. I've worked okay. in that yeah. environment, trust me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of people who've done any kind of creative production, okay, understand that, you know, you know, we're as good almost as the last minute. Basically, <laughs> and, you are 100% correct. You know, so it's a brutal way to be. And the, the thing is, to be in that kind of environment, and by the way, you need to be happy, upbeat, and productive, and creative. Well, you're also uh, quoted, uh, and I'm going to have to paraphrase it, but it's been quoted from you that, you know, some people, vans drove up, took the person who was losing his or her mind out the door, and you never saw him again. Like, the atmosphere was that intense. No, it was. There were more nervous breakdowns at Atari than any place I've ever worked. It's amazing. Uh, there literally were people who went insane in their office, started throwing things around, breaking stuff, and had to be taken away. People literally lost their mind at times because of the amount of pressure and the amount of stuff that was going on. Not everyone was really built to handle it. Well, that's I it. mean, even those of us who did it were barely <laughs> getting through it. Well, time. that's, again, when you, if you go and you, and, and, and but you were a part of it, but for my audience, if you go out and you view Atari Game Over, the documentary by Zach Penn, you'll get a really good feeling and, and, and insight into that time period. Now, for you, and let, you know, we'll flash forward a little bit here. Now, it's the summer of 1982, and E.T., Extraterrestrial, becomes the hit summer movie. Now, i got to be honest. I've never seen it. It just I was 14. It, for some reason, did not appeal to me. And even after all these years and having kids myself, I've never seen the movie. But okay. I know a lot about it, obviously. I know it was a hit, and uh, that time period... People were starting to see dollar signs. You had already done Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, more or less for Spielberg, turning it into a video game. Uh, them, I assume Spielberg, I assume Atari, their pre- your president at the time, Ray Kesser. Everyone saw dollar signs. Well, they call up Howard Scott Warsaw, who is the go-to kid, 
and they go, hey, man, can you make us an E.T. Vis uh, version of a video game? You got five weeks. What was your first reaction? I can do it. <laughs> I would have said the same thing. <laughs> reaction. I mean, the way it went, Spielberg actually asked for me to do this game. He was very happy with what happened on Raiders. And apparently, Ray Kazar, who was the guy who was the CEO of Atari, called up my boss's boss and said, hey, you know, this is like late, late July. Yep. And uh, we need E.T. for uh, for September 1st. So you have like five weeks. He goes, uh, so what can we do? And And he said, we can't. You can't do a game in five weeks. You just can't do it. And so after that, he called, Ray Kazar called me directly. He just called me and he said, <laughs> Howard, we need E.T. for September 1st. Can you do it? And I kind of knew this was coming. I wasn't really thinking about doing the game, but I just the way things were rolling, I just had a feeling this was coming up. And so I just said to him, I said, yes, absolutely, I can do this game. And uh, there was no question in my mind because I was so full of myself. <laughs> well, but, but that, but again, it goes back to the you know the the, the uh, test pilot mentality that I threw out earlier. You have to believe you can do it. If you don't, it won't happen. And that's the truth. That's truth. Everything you don't do doesn't happen, right? Exactly. So a certain percentage of what you do try to do happens, and that's not a hundred percent. But you have to buy into it. You have to be there. And I was totally there. But I. See, I was at a point in my life where I needed a challenge. Obviously, that's why I went to Atari. All of these things, I kept looking for something, another mountain to climb. That's what I needed right then. And this was a great opportunity to do something that had never been done before and try and really make this work and pull this off. Was To me, it was an irresistible challenge. To most of the other people around me, it was a ridiculous thing to avoid. And it makes sense. Okay. It makes sense. Now... Uh, walk me through it if you can. From what I've read, what I understand, you were offered a nice bonus by Spielberg. I think you were offered a trip to Hawaii. Am I correct on that? Well, at the end, they offered, they, they gave me a trip once we announced the thing. I did get a good bonus, and I told them right up front, I said, you know, this is going to cost you a good bonus. <laughs> Very good. And, uh, and they came across with it, and that was cool. But uh, mostly what I was looking for was trying to meet you know, what was widely acknowledged as an almost impossible challenge. And whether I met it or not is still debatable. But I delivered the game. Well, and it's, uh, you can step I'll back you, on I'll, that. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll tell you a story about the thing. is, So when it was announced that Howard's going to do E.T. just after I did Raiders, and there was some grumbling. Right? People, oh, so Howard gets to do all the really good properties or whatever. Everybody viewed it as a big opportunity, of course. And we're having a department meeting, and people were like, oh, yeah. You know, it wasn't really nasty or anything, but I mean, people were just, it was just kind of a fun thing. But, but they were saying, you know, okay, how come Howard gets to do this, too? And so I stood up in the meeting, and I said, okay. I said, E.T., this is probably like August 1st or 2nd. I said, E.T. is due September 1st. I said, anyone who wants to do it, you can have it. Just say so. Anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I said, who wants to do it? And... The room went silent. <laughs> I bet like, it did. <laughs> and that settled it. You know, that was it because it was just, you know, yeah, I'm willing to put myself in the line of fire. And so that's the way it goes. I mean, the way I got Raiders was kind of odd. One of the things that got me Raiders, one of them was Yars. I, I played Yars with Spielberg, and he really liked that. 
<laughs> but the thing was, I told him while I was down there, I was down at uh, in his office at the studio. Okay. And I said, you know something, Stephen? I said, I have an interesting theory about you. I said, I have a theory that you're actually an alien. I said, would you like to hear it? And he goes, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to hear it. And I explained this whole thing to him about I always believed that if the aliens were going to come here and actually meet us, which in, in the early 80s, it really felt like we were close to contact. It okay. really did. Yeah. yeah, there are a lot of movies out at the, with that same genre, yeah. Right. And if you think about it, you know, sci-fi movies with aliens in them, the aliens were always the monsters we had to kill by the end of the movie. That's the way sci-fi had always been. Spielberg started to put out movies like E.T. and Close Encounters and stuff where the aliens weren't the monster and uh and started to it was like the friendly alien and i said to him i said so if the aliens are really going to meet us you know they're not going to just show up on the doorstep and go here we are i said they're going to send an advanced team to culturalize us and prepare us and i said i think he's part of this advanced team and he's the production arm he makes the films and then he has this super marketing arm a team that makes sure that these movies get seen all over the earth in every language, which his movies were. And that way they're preparing humans to be better, more more receptive to aliens, so there's less flash, yeah. basically, when they show up. And so I laid that on him, and he, I think he was kind of tickled by that. And subsequently, I got a call from Game Magazine who told me that Steven Spielberg had told them that I had a quote for them about Spielberg being an alien, and I wound up with quote of the month in this magazine for calling Steven Spielberg an alien, which I thought was fun. It's actually but, pretty good, Howard, because it is it is almost like following a propaganda type of, uh, of uh, plan, you know what I mean? Right, and that's why you know they would be production people just like us. <laughs> so they have schedules and they have goals yeah. and they have stuff they want to do. You know, the question is, what are they trying to do with this planet? That's the biggest question with the aliens. But <laughs> that's the truth, though. It was just a natural thing that came about. But it was kind, of, and that's the kind of stuff that went on. Is you try to find a new way to approach something or a different take, a different concept. You know, that's what creativity is, ultimately. It's taking taking a few things you already are aware of and putting them together in a way that was counterintuitive, that nobody ever, it never occurred to put them together that way before. But when you do it, seeing the sense in it and being able to realize and, and produce that. Well, there you go. Now, you did you have, how many people on your team were helping you? Do you have one or two people? Well, including me? Yeah. There was basically one person doing the game, and then I had two other people. I had one person who did the, the sound, but basically the sound that they did was the opening song. Okay. I had another person who did graphics, a guy named Jerome Demira, okay. who's uh, a friend of mine to this day. And he did a lot of the, he did the animations, the walk animation, did the backgrounds. He did a lot of good work on that game. But uh, I did everything else. Okay, so it was like 22-hour days. Uh, yeah, it was about a month of them. Okay, 22 there were days. A lot of days. I actually had a development system moved into my home okay. so that I could almost always be programming. Because sometimes you solve problems in your sleep. Yep. You wake up with an answer, and I wanted to be able to just, when that happened, get on it and do it. I didn't want to miss anything. I didn't want to lose a break or a breakthrough or anything like that. I can that, understand so. that completely. So, But you did meet with Spielberg on this. Now, he had a different version in his mind of what you were coming up with? There was a little bit of differences there? Am I no, correct? I didn't really meet with him very much. Yeah, I mean, it's, what happened was uh, I got the call from Kazar to say we're going to do E.T., and I said, okay. This was a Tuesday evening. 
this is like late Tuesday afternoon. He says, okay, Thursday morning there'll be a Learjet at San Jose Airport waiting for you to go. You're going to come to L.A. and present the design to Spielberg, the design that I didn't start yet. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like, you got 36 so I got, hours. <laughs> exactly. I got 36 hours to come up with the design, so that's what I did. And then we fly to L.A. and we're presenting the design to Spielberg. And it was an amazing moment that happened there, um, uh, personality-wise. Because what happened there was I get there and I present the design, I lay the whole thing out, and it's not just, you know, another game, but this is like an innovative thing. It's a 3D world. I'm actually, even though I only have five weeks, I still want to innovate with the game. I still want to really do something spectacular because I just can't not do that. And so lay the whole thing out, and Spielberg looks it over. He thinks for a second. He looks at me. He goes, couldn't you do something more like Pac-Man? <laughs> and said, Steven, and what I wanted to say, the impulse that I had in my head that was right there was, gee, you know, couldn't you do something more like the day the Earth stood still? You know? <laughs> it's like I couldn't believe that Steven Spielberg, one of the most creative people ever in film, wants me to do a knockoff for one of his biggest properties. You know? And I so, but I said to him, I said, look, you know, I said, you know, this is a big movie, and I said we need a game that's going to be commensurate with it, and just knocking off something else. I said, I don't know, and also I don't know if that's going to work with the schedule because it would take longer to do that kind of game, and this had to be a game that was. This, and I, I gave him a number of reasons why I thought we should go, and he was like, yeah, okay, that's fine. But uh, in retrospect, maybe it wasn't a bad idea. <laughs> well, you <laughs> it, know, it you might make, have been onto something. You know, I, again, now me being an adult now. What you said to him makes sense to me. Now, it sounds maybe on Spielberg's side of it, his people, his mind as well. I mean, let's face it, this is being rushed to get out for Christmas 1982. Everyone's looking at bucks here. This is money. Everyone's, and this is, this is where greed gets you, and I think you'll agree with that. You get too greedy, you end up losing, and that's kind of where we're heading here, and you were kind of pulled into it. But to me, it seems like Spielberg saw the dollar signs. Kesser saw the dollar signs. I actually think Kesser needed the dollars and the signs to follow at the time. And there you are in the middle of it, and you have to be who you are at that time to even try this. You have to be the young, cocky Howard Scott Warsaw who's already done this. I'm the test pilot. Give me the joystick. I'm going on the next run. Who else could have done this? Can you think? And I'm not trying to kiss well, your ass in this else. thing. Who else could have taken the step forward and wanted And you said it yourself. In the meeting, no one else wanted it. So you had it. Yeah, I don't think anybody else would have. I mean, I don't think the question was ever should someone else have done the game. That was never a question. The question was should the game have been done? Should it even have been attempted? But, you know, for me, there was never a question. It was go, go, go. Unless they stopped and, you, and no one was stopping you because they needed your juice to make it happen. Well, everybody was on the dream that this could happen. Yeah, yeah. and it was about money, but for Spielberg, it wasn't really about money because Spielberg was getting all his money up front. And he was, I don't think he had, like, a royalty interest in the game. I think he did, they were just paying him an exorbitant licensing fee, which really wasn't just about the game. It was about a manipulation Warner was trying to pull to get him to join Warner and leave Universal. It was $25 so, million dollars in 1982. That I can't imagine what that is now. Well, in 1982, mm. Spielberg made a million dollars a day. Wow. Okay, he was having a good year. 
<laughs> He's had a good life. <laughs> you know, so he was doing fine, but this was, it wasn't chunk change, but it was, you know, his money was up front. It was all set. And it's true, Kazar was, you know, wanted to make something happen because they, and I don't think any of them really, none of them had any idea what it takes to make a video game. They just didn't. People didn't understand it. And they still think it's a game. How hard can it be to make a game? That's the way a lot of people think. A lot of programmers think that. I mean, to this day, a lot of technical people look down on game programmers, even though, I mean, I've worked in all aspects of computer development. I mean, both very formal environments, very informal environments, games, networking, uh, robotics, uh, CAD stuff, all kinds of stuff. I've been all over the place. And I can tell you unequivocally that game programmers are some of the most skilled and most diverse programmers there are. And yet around the industry, the image is, well, you make games, it's kind of just goofing around. And people aren't, they look down on games programmers a lot of times, unjustifiably. But, you know, justice does not always prevail, unfortunately. However, we're going to roll into the next break. We come back. I'm going to throw some thoughts to you on that last statement because I agree with you. You're listening to Life on Edit. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my special guest is Howard Scott Warsaw. He was in the middle of the demise of Atari and the video game industry in the early to mid-1980s. He was the designer of the E.T. video game for Atari. Be right back. Have you or someone you Welcome back to Life on Edit. I'm your host, John Averly. And my special guest, Howard Scott Warsaw, designer of the E.T. video game for Atari back in the early 80s. We're discussing the demise of Atari. We're discussing the recession, the great recession of the video game industry between 83 and 85. Uh, but I also want to give Howard a chance to promote the new reinvention of himself. Howard is now a psychotherapist in the Silicon Valley area. Howard, I'd like you to give your website, please, so the listeners can go and find out even more about you. Well, my website is hswarshaw.com. That's H-S-W-A-R-S-H-A-W.com. That's my therapist website. Uh, there's also onceuponatari.com, yep. which is a documentary series that I did with, with all the engineers who were there, which really tells you the inside story of what it was like to work there and be an engineer at Atari, which is a pretty intense ride. But, uh, yeah, my psychotherapy work now is incredibly fulfilling to me. I Atari, bet it is. The, the thing that's, 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 that's interesting about Atari for me is that Atari was the most amazing ex work experience there was, and it happened early in my career. I mean, at the age of, by, by the age of 25, I had total creative freedom making new groundbreaking product in a new medium with a lot of attention and focus and a lot of remuneration. It was all, it was like a dream come true. And when that dream blew up, I knew it was going to be really hard to replicate. And every job I had after that, and I had a lot of different jobs because I've had a lot of different careers. And... Nothing was really as gratifying or satisfying to me as producing that entertainment was until now. Becoming a psychotherapist uh, really is my dream job now because it, I've always been fascinated with human behavior. I've always been 
just so interested in why do people do what they do. Yep. And now it's my profession. So the way I look at it is I used to entertain nerds and techies, <laughs> and now I actually make their lives better. It's, uh, it's very gratifying. It's the first time since Atari that I can say I truly love what I do. Well, I'm happy for you on a personal note with that. Now I'm going to bring on a little side note for my audience. Uh, I plan on having Howard back uh, here to do another interview with me sometime in the next few weeks where we're going to discuss the Silicon Valley in detail, Howard's work as a psychotherapist, what he encounters working with creative people, and the friction that I have to assume that is there between the creative people, the bean counters, and the managers, because I'm a part of it in my regular work, and I know it can be a battlefield of hell trying to merge those three <laughs> types of personalities that is the truth. To come up with something. And we're going to break all that down again in the next few weeks where we really get to delve into what Howard does now in his post, post, post Atari existence <laughs> at this point. <laughs> but getting back to how you got here, uh, so you're, you're putting in the 22 hours. Uh, were you married at the time? Uh, when I was doing ET. Yeah, yeah we doing uh, too. Yes, I was. I had just gotten married to a woman who actually worked at Atari. And that was a marriage that was the triumph of hope over experience. Okay. <laughs> was kind of doomed to failure, but at the time it was pretty intense. And, I mean, everything else in my life disappeared for the time I was doing uh, that game. Well, that would make and sense. I mean... It's a window. It's five weeks. You know there's a beginning and an end to it. And you know it's a once-in-a-lifetime shot. You know, I mean, to me, that's human dynamics right there. You're put in a position to sink or swim. And if you have any self-pride, you're going to give everything you have to it. And you just kind of hope at that point everything you've given is going to be enough. Well, you do. But it's also a thing about the environment at Atari. And even Nolan Bushnell talks to this himself is the idea that what you're looking for in a sense, and this is why there was also a lot of nervous breakdown, okay? You're looking for people who are looking to find fulfillment in something, who, are, who need to do this. You're looking for people for whom being creative and, and producing a product is not just something cool to do or something they're interested in. You're looking for people who have to do this, who must do this for whatever reason. And when you find people like that and you give them the opportunity, you are also giving them the opportunity to throw the rest of their life away. And you're you're rewarding them for it. So what the product on the other side that comes out can be fabulous and you can do really well with it. But the price that some of these people pay in terms of the balance in their lives yeah. and the composition of what's going on can be pretty heavy. And some people paid that price more than others, that's for sure. And that's where your insight, on a quick side note there, your personal insight and experience much is, it was, is going to make you a tremendously successful psychotherapist dealing with people such as the way you were in the Silicon Valley. 
Well, I do. I'm, I'm actually, I'm the Silicon Valley therapist, right? I special, I work with a variety of kinds of people. I see a lot of couples and individuals, but my specialty is working with people in the high-tech industry and the entertainment software industry, both managers and uh, technical producers, because I understand the pressures uh, that they face more than a lot of other therapists do, because I've been there. That's I've it. spent decades in that industry. That's a selling point. So you get through it. Now you're ready to unveil it. Who are you showing first? You're showing Ray Kesser? Are you calling Spielberg? Is everyone in a well, meeting room? It goes into the testing department, and they're working on it as we get, you know, and the thing is, there's a place in the development of a video game that's called first playable, right? And that's the first time you have everything you plan to put in the game at least represented in the game so you can start to experience the game as it's intended. Mm -hmm. And most games, you get the first playable, and that's about 20% of your schedule. And then the rest of the time is working and reworking and fixing and tuning to make a good game. The problem with this short of schedule is that most of that schedule is taken up just getting the first playable, which means there isn't going to be much time for people to experience the game before it has to be shipped. So we're essentially shipping first playable, which is an absurd concept in gaming, but that's what we had to do. So uh, people in testing played it some towards the end. There was a little feedback, not a lot. And I honestly, to tell you the truth, I was so burned out after that five weeks. I wasn't really receptive to a lot of stuff coming back. <laughs> I, I understand. Yeah, I was just too much. I just wanted to get the thing done and get it out, and I was done with it by the time it was in. And part of the deal was that Spielberg was going to be the one who was going to approve it, you know, because there was that paranoia about how Atari was going to deal with it or what they were going to do with it. So I just told him, I want Spielberg to be the one who approves the game. And because I knew he was motivated. <laughs> so Money. <laughs> I, uh, you know, and so towards the end of the game, he flew up because he wasn't really very involved in the development of the game. Spielberg is really good at selecting people he respects creatively and letting them work. And that's a great thing if you're a creative person, have someone let you do that. And so he came up at the end and he played through the game and he just thought it was fun. He was really kind of digging it, you know. He didn't spend three or four hours playing the game, I promise you. But, <laughs> you know, he played it some, and he got into it, and he dug it, because, like you say, there were, everybody had dollar signs yeah. going on. And uh, so that was fine. So we released the game, because it really couldn't do much more of it. If I would have had two more days, okay, when you think about it, it would have been a significant percentage of the entire schedule. Yep. Okay, but in two more days, I could have made a lot of the tweaks if I would have had it in mind to change these things. But it was just done. It was just over, and uh, and he approved it, so it went out, and then it was just like, whew, then it was time to exhale, you know, and really, and I think it took me a couple of months, because I had just finished a 10-month, fairly grueling working thing producing Raiders, yep. and then went right into E.T., which well, was just... Well, here's the business end, I think you'll understand now. They wanted this, this cartridge out, uh, Atari wanted it out, Spielberg's people wanted it out. Everybody wanted it out before Christmas. I think for them would have been November 1st uh, for it to begin s selling. If they had been a little less greedy, and this is, of course, with hindsight now, they could have delayed it another week or two, which is done these days going into Christmas sales to make a toy that much more valuable. You kind of make it, it has to be, has to be. Another week or two today wouldn't have made any difference. 
in the sense, would well, have given you more time, though, to do what you needed to do. Yeah, it's a classic debate in creative production. What you're always going to find is creative people, because I've heard this in so many companies in so many different places. Creative people will say, if you give us a little more time, we'll make a better product, and that will more than compensate in better sales. And the salespeople say, every week of missed sales is a week you will never get back. And if we miss that window, we're losing everything because, let's face it, the product, the quality of the product isn't going to make that much of a difference because it's going to come and go. And if we miss the window, we're dead. And those are the mentalities. I'm not saying what the truth is. I'm just saying these are the two competing mentalities that are going into it. And every once in a while, a product comes along that demonstrates one of them was wrong. But most products kind of really do fall in that place. You know, most old adages and most old wives tales start from a place of truth. True. And so it's the exceptions people are rooting for. The rules still tend to hold. So, so there was that conflict there, just like, I mean, I've heard these things just in the last couple of years. I've heard exactly the same arguments for things. And it's, it's a very interesting thing to notice. There's a, there's a phrase we used to use in playing games that was greed kills, because you've, yes. you've mentioned this a number of times. We used to say greed kills is the lesson of video games, because when you're playing a game, you're doing really well, and it's when you try to grab the extra bonus or the extra couple of points instead of just keep playing through, that's when you die. That's when you get killed. But it's also the lesson in a big picture, like you're saying, for, uh, for Atari, is that greed was at the root of a lot of it. And also, there was also this thing of every, it was having a tiger by the tail. This was a thing that was set to take off. When Warner bought it, and I don't know how much of what Warner did really contributed to the success, because this was a brand new thing that everybody captured people's imagination. And so it was going to take off. And even Nolan Bushnell didn't know how big this was going to be, or he never would have sold a company for $22 million that two years later was worth hundreds of millions, right? Yes. He's not that kind of businessman. Nobody knew what they had, and it was already set to go. But when it was taking off, everyone wanted to take credit for You know, success has a thousand fathers, but <laughs> failure is an orphan, <laughs> that right? That is the truth. You know, so that was that was really the story of Atari. And, and there was a guy I used to know at Atari, and he used to say, he would say, you know what state-of-the-art is? You know what the definition of state-of-the-art is? Because the definition of state-of-the-art means if it's broke, no one knows how to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great saying. And save. that was the story. You know, it was like a huge success that was taking off, and everyone wanted to take credit for what was going on. But I think it was just a phenomenon whose time had come, and when it turned... No one knew what to do about it. The people who had stood up and taken the most credit for it were the ones who were most responsible for it. Ray Kazar was out of there a few months into the oh, bad news. Yes, he was. And brought yes, someone he else was. in to fix it. Yeah. And then they couldn't fix it, so they got rid of them and they brought someone else in to fix it. it they were desperate to find a fix, but no one knew what to do. Well, it was a perfect storm coming, as you were just kind of alluding to. The industry was saturated. I mean, there mm -hmm. was... In television, Sears had their own thing out. You had 10 or 12 different TV console type of video games that were being set up that could be you could buy and play. It just the market was saturated. That's a big part of it right there. Then, right, and no one had innovated. No one had done anything new because what, another, another what I think is a fundamental reason why the game industry blew up for a little while mm -hmm. 
was because it was the first product life cycle. True. So if you think about it, now when the PS when the PS4 comes out, the PS5 is already in design. Yep. Okay. They know that there's a certain amount of time they have to milk this version, and then they're going to have to let that go and start with the new one. And, and they know that now. They learned that from Atari because Atari was the first time, and no one knew what the product life cycle of a video game system was. But it was a cash cow, that's for sure. Whenever anybody talked about let's get a next system ready to go, they were like, no, we're making a lot of money with this thing. We don't, we're not ready to stop making that kind of money. So when it did stop, because it does stop yep. eventually, people just are, want to see something fresh, they didn't have anything to go with it. And that's probably why the thing failed, because when it revived, it revived with Sega Nintendo coming right. out with the next generation systems, and that, and it did take off. And it did. And I remember Nintendo coming out in the mid to late '80s, and then you had Sega, and then it's gone. You know, from that point, the graphics and designs have gotten better and better with each generational version of it. So it, it I mean, it is. It does obviously have its place, and it is very successful and it's very profitable. But now, you know, with E.T., with your game E.T., you sold. You are credited for selling one and a half million cartridges of the right. game. I mean, it was the biggest selling, I believe, Atari game ever created. Oh, no. There were, there were, there were a couple. A pie, man, I'll take that. Selling game. I'll take Space that Invaders back. Is, Space yeah. Invaders is really the biggest the big selling one. Atari game uh, on the home system. But what it was was they made four million of them. And they were only able to sell a million and a half. Yep. Even after returns, it still sold a million. Every one of my games sold over a million. I still think I'm the only programmer who can say that. But I mean, every single one of my games sold over a million. But the expectation for ET was so high and so unrealistic and so crazy. Also, you know, Raiders to do a game from Raiders is not a stretch. It's an action movie. Yep. To do a game from ET, ET is an emotional tone movie. And although I wanted to try and get an emotional tone out of it, to try and get an emotional tone out of the twenty six hundred gaming system is nuts. Right? Well, you were limited. You were limited to what you could work with. But yeah. you put it together, again, 1.5 million sold during the Christmas holiday season of 82, going into 83. You said to yourself, even if there were a half a million returns, you still were over a million in sales, and that's a tremendous benchmark. Uh, you know, the problems, it complaints, problems, whatever you want to say, started to happen right after Christmas, more so than anything else. Uh, what was the—originally, everyone was really pleased, but then that backlash— what was it like going back to the Atari offices after January 1st? Could you feel it coming? Could you feel, hey, uh, there's going to be a I scapegoat here? <laughs> I, I didn't know what was going on, and, and people didn't treat me like a scapegoat. I mean, and, and I never would have accepted it. I mean, my philosophy is it's a poor craftsman who blames his tools, right? I was going to do the best thing that I could do, and I felt satisfied that I had achieved a super uh, – I had really climbed the mountain. I delivered the game. It wasn't perfect, but it wasn't the worst game ever. I really don't believe that. But it was, I delivered. I brought the thing through, and I felt like I had really achieved something. Then when people started to see me occasionally go, you know something, Howard, we don't blame you. Or, you know, Howard, that ET thing, you really came through for us. You know, we don't, we don't, this isn't, this isn't on you what's going on. I'm thinking, like, what are they talking about? I don't want to hear that. Uh, i got to be honest with you. You're saying that to me, that means you're blaming me, because you wouldn't be saying it. 
Right, but I mean, but, but what for? Because I wasn't hearing anything about returns or anything like that. Because you know, this you know, this is before the internet, right? Yeah. So news doesn't spread as fast, and the people in sales they do not share their data with people in the company very much, right? So I don't know what's going on. The last the last thing I saw was it was on the Billboard Top 40 sales, right? Yep. It was like number two or number three in sales. That's pretty good. Oh yeah, right? that's the mark of a good game. And so, but the feedback was the the feedback lag was substantial. So when it started, I didn't realize that there was a problem with it until later, after I'd already gotten all this feedback. But like, it seems like there's a problem. But how could there be a problem if it's still selling really well and all this stuff's going on? It was, it was just, it was a strange, weird place to go mentally. Yeah, and, it, uh, it, it, and I I realized that through watching. Uh, the one documentary, of course, Atari Game Over by Zach Penn. Uh, I got into a little bit of what you were doing with Once Upon Atari. And and I'm going to hold off on the emotional aspect of everything because when we do the second part of this interview in a couple weeks and we get more into your psychotherapy work, I want to stay focused on the emotional aspect of everything you went through in, 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 and I think obviously very instrumental in getting you to the career you feel you really belong at as a therapist and how you interact with the people in the Silicon Valley. So I'm going to kind of steer that emotional end over there. I think that's going to make for a great second show. So I, Excellent. Yeah, so I kind of, what I want to wrap up with, we've got about two and a half minutes here, is the, I shouldn't say the, but what you, what you did see, though, I mean, the, a lot of the cartridges, there's, the documentary, the cartridges ended up dumped in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, in a landfill. Uh, there were people there looking for the, the great dig experience of it. it. Turned out to be, I think, five, six hundred copies. Lord knows where Atari dumped the rest of it. Just seemed like a slash and burn mentality at that time as Atari was coming down. In like, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, can you give me your feelings as you were watching that? That crumble there, though, the, the crumbling of Atari. Okay, I saw it absolutely from the inside. And what you saw, I would say if you have to sum it up in one word, that word is desperation. Yeah. People were grasping at straws, trying to do anything. They were bringing in the craziest ideas. There were just ridiculous things to attempt. They tried to create a new system almost instantly, and, of course, that couldn't work. It was just the air was thick with desperation. A place that was full of pride and ownership and uh, real a sense that here we are. We are the real thing and we are coming through was replaced with an environment of blame and avarice and uh, just paranoia was really those were some of the dominant things. And to see that switch go on, it was a very challenging place to work, to be in there, because day-to-day -day you didn't know if we're generating a big success or if we're not going to have a job tomorrow. And we went through that for about a year <laughs> because you'd see signs of both on a regular basis. But people's attitude changed. There you it go. really did. There you go, Howard. We're going to wrap it up on that note, and when we come back in a couple weeks, we're going to pick it up right here, the emotions and watching something as it sinks. I mean, it's... It's a, I've been there, I've seen it, I've felt it. So we'll be able to share our thoughts on that, and especially yours as a psychotherapist. Today my guest has been Howard Scott Warsaw. He is a psychotherapist now. Once upon a time he did work for Atari as a lead programmer. 
He did the E.T. game. He did Raiders of the Lost Ark. He did Yars Revenge. He was there for the demise of Atari and the Great Recession of the video gaming industry between 83 and 85. And I want to thank you for coming on, Howard. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to part two. John, I'm already looking forward to our next talk. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, man. You have a good weekend.